I'm titling my message today, Why People Walk Away From God. And I began this journey because I really wanted to understand more why people that I know, why family members, why my own kids, even though I raised them in the church, they're walking away from God as adults. So I found some really incredible teachings by some amazing pastors, and I just want to share it with you today. I'm a communicator. Uh, I don't have a master's in divinity, but God lets me get up in front of people and talk. So uh, today I really want to share with you some of the stuff that I've learned. Um, I want to talk to you about how people who grew up in the church and then left the church because they simply could not reconcile what they learned at church with their real life situations. They can't explain science versus Christianity. Christianity. They can't explain every reference of the Bible with their faith. They can't explain pain and suffering. So today I want to talk about that. Do you know that there are 25% of Americans who, if they are asked to choose on a document what their faith is, they no longer want to choose Christianity or Catholicism, or, but they also don't want to choose atheism because I think that scares them. The idea of a godless planet scares people. They don't want to pick atheists, so they have this new category called none or nuns believe it or not. I actually looked it up in Wikipedia, and there is a description for nuns in Wikipedia, and it says, nuns, a term sometimes used for people with no religious affiliation in the United States. I read an article in National Geographic about it as well, and it said, the religiously unaffiliated called nuns are growing significantly. They're the second largest religious group in North America and most of Europe. The article went on to say, I don't have a slide, but it went on to say that in the United States, nuns make up almost a quarter of the population. In the past decade, decade, U.S. nuns have overtaken Catholics and mainline Protestants. Somewhere along the way, we began to see the world as grown-ups with challenges and questions and difficulties that the God of our youth didn't seem to really fit into our adult lives. There are many people struggling with believing in God, yet they're not ready to pick atheists as their choice because the thought of living in a godless universe means that everything is reduced to the laws of chemistry or physics, and that just is unsettling. So none is a safer checkbox to do. Here's an interesting fact. Did you know that the early Christians, the first century Christians, were considered atheists by their culture? And it's because they did not believe in the Roman gods. They didn't worship Roman gods. And if you Google them, there is like, there's this huge list of Roman gods from Jupiter and Juno and Mars. And they had a god of war and a god of trade and um, a god of grapes and production and wine production. Um, so the Romans believed that the Christians were atheists because they no longer worshipped these gods. But the message that the Christians were trying to say to the pagans were, you've got the wrong God. And today there are more and more people who feel like they're, they're stuck in the middle. They're stuck somewhere between, I used to believe, but now I'm not so sure. 
Many people are walking away from their religion and from Christianity, but they may be walking away from the wrong God. I listen to people tell me about God and the attributes that they struggle with, and I find myself wanting to say, who told you that was God? Who said that that was who he was like and what he would do? Where did you get that idea? So I want to look at some of the stories of people who have walked away from God and why. Maybe one of these is your story. Maybe you experienced a childhood conversion and then you transitioned into an environment that was not religious, like you went to college or your family moved or uh, you got a new job and you're suddenly in a a situation or an environment that is non-religious. And it was fun. You liked it a lot. Maybe better. Or maybe you grew up in a religious environment and you experienced a childhood conversion and then you had, you experienced a faith-crushing event. Whatever happened, it wiped out your faith or it shook you into a place of doubt. And maybe neither of these things happened. Maybe you just grew up in a Christian home and you began asking adult questions and no one could really answer you. Your parents couldn't answer, your pastor couldn't answer, and sometimes you receive so many different versions of an answer that it just, it wasn't satisfactory. You began to say, I used to be a Christian, or I used to be a religious person, but I don't know, you know. You still say that you believe in God, because I think the thought of not of saying out loud that you don't believe in God is still scary. But you're really not sure what that means or what you believe. Because when you began asking adult questions about your childhood faith, you received faith-based answers to fact-based questions. There was an author who wrote, One day it dawned on me, I didn't believe anymore. And then she came to the conclusion, one day it dawned on me, I couldn't believe anymore. She couldn't explain the God she was taught to believe in with her new reality. And she couldn't deny her reality, so she couldn't believe anymore. That's the sad reality of what's going on now. Today I want to talk about two misconceptions about Christianity. So I'm calling them the who told you that was God, and the Bible says it, so that settles it. These are two misconceptions of Christianity. So I want to start with who told you that was God. This is what somebody told me God would do. You know, when you're growing up, somebody told you that this is how God would respond to this situation, or this is what God would do. And the... Bible says it, so that settles it. Anybody get anybody raised with that kind of dialogue? The Bible says it, so that settles it. I did too. I did too. I grew up in that sort of environment. But every time that you would ask a question, somebody would say, well, the Bible says, the Bible says, or if you were a little bit in doubt, they'd say, well, the Bible says, right? So for the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about these two misconceptions of Christianity. But I'm going to start with who told you that was God? This is usually the version of God that you and I learned as a child. Maybe your parents or a priest or a pastor. 
And because you were young, you simply accepted it. You just did what they said, and you said, okay. There's a quote by Karen Armstrong. She's the author of The Case for God, and she says, many of us have been left stranded within, in an incoherent concept of God. We learned about God at about the same time as we were told about Santa Claus. I, I want to pause there because my mother was one of those random people that raised my brother and I not to believe in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny because of that exact reason. She didn't want us to be taught to believe in Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy, and God, and then someday we would think that they were all not real. So, And it was funny because she never really disrespected or had a problem with anybody that taught them that. She used to say, now don't tell people Santa Claus isn't real. Let somebody else burst their bubble. So I never thought anything of it, and I taught my kids exactly the same way. I, I just didn't teach them to believe in, in those characters, but I don't mind when other people do. Um, anyway, okay, I want to go back to the quote. So I'm going to read it again. Many of us have been left stranded with an incoherent concept of God. We learned about God at about the same time as we were told about Santa Claus. But while our understanding of the Santa Claus phenomenon evolved and matured, our theology remained somewhat infantile. Not surprisingly, when we attained intellectual maturity, many of us rejected the God we inherited and denied that he existed. I think this is true for many of us. We learned about God as a small child and something happened as we got older. So I want to talk about the gods that do not exist and you shouldn't believe in them anymore you may have walked away from God one of these gods but that does not mean that God does not exist all right I'm calling them our Sunday school gods the first one is Superman God Superman God is the one who fights for truth and justice in the American way right so Superman God is described like this a good God would not allow bad things to happen to a good person. Since bad things should never happen to good people, there must be a good God, Superman God, right? The truth is God never said this. This is something that somebody told you, and on the surface it makes sense. But the truth is Christianity started because of something horrible that happened to a really good person person. That was the beginning of Christianity. And if Christianity was taught as a religion that would never allow bad things to happen to its followers, it would have never made it out of the first century. Because the Christians who were following what they called the way back then, which is Christianity as we know it, they suffered greatly for the fact that they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. No one ever built a case for God based on the lack of evil. So if you lost your faith in the Superman God, good. Some of you, that's your entire foundation of your faith. It's that God will protect me from bad things. Then as soon as something bad happens to a good person or to you, your structure and your foundation for your faith completely crumbles. There's nothing left. Why? Because you have the wrong God. The next Sunday school God I call genie in a bottle God. The genie in a bottle, God, you know, the genie in a bottle is, I don't know if it's a lamp or a bottle, but you rub the bottle and a genie pops out and he grants you three wishes. 
right? So the first wish is always for a billion dollars. Why wouldn't you, right? The second one is my favorite. You ask that you can eat anything and everything you want and you never gain weight. <laughs> and I know you all know what the third one is. The third wish is, I want a billion more wishes, right? You laugh, but I bet you wish that God was this way. And you probably sometimes treat God this way. And your faith gets a little shaken when God doesn't answer on demand. The genie in the bottle God should be a God that answers any fair and reasonable request that you have, right? In the same way that I would answer a reasonable request, why doesn't God do that for me? Hey God, I'm not asking you to change the world. I'm just asking you to give me that promotion that I deserve or that job that I should get. I'm not asking you to fix the world. I'm asking you for a boyfriend or a husband. And he doesn't have to be like, you know, really good looking or anything, but it'd be nice if he had a job. <laughs> Maybe hair, teeth, those things would be nice. I mean, he doesn't have to be Tom Cruise, but could he not be Tom Arnold? You know what I mean? You're, you're being very reasonable. I just think that if there was a personal God, then he should be at the ready to do anything I want, whenever I want it, just as I've asked. Right? Genie in a bottle. But that's not your experience. You asked for something and you heard nothing. Or you asked for a sign and you saw nothing. You even threw a couple of bucks in the offering plate just to kind of sweeten the deal. And, and somebody else got the promotion that you deserved. Somebody else got that job that you prayed for. Or you asked for a miracle and you didn't get it. So there must not be a God, right? You're right. The genie in a bottle God does not exist. And it's okay to stop believing in genie in the bottle God. But here's the question. Who told you that God would respond that way? Who told you he would do what you tell him to do? I am actually quite glad that he does not do that because God obviously does not answer to everything that I tell him to do, which is good because when I was 15 or 16, that would have messed my whole life up. And some of you would be married to the wrong man. Am I right? If God did everything that we asked him to do and he was our very personal, personal genie in a bottle God, that would be bad. So it's okay to stop believing in him. The third Sunday school God is what I call man's best friend God. Okay, how many of you are dog people? Dog people. All right, cat people. A uh, smaller number. I knew it would be. A couple of, couple of fish people, bird people, <laughs> gerbil people. I know, I know, you're out there. So, <laughs> nuns. <laughs> so, I'm... I happen to be a cat person, and it's funny because my husband told me I had to tell you guys all that he does not have a cat. I have a cat. <laughs> and I call her Kitty Pants. Anyway, yet just yesterday I took this picture. So Kitty Pants, as soon as I woke up and I looked to my left, there she was. And then within just a few more moments, she has to crawl right onto my chest because I have a king-size bed, but that is where she wants to sleep. This is just yesterday. And then I finally get up and I wander into the bathroom and within about 30 seconds, there she is. Yes. There she is. She follows me around everywhere. 
She is always close by. I can feel her presence at all times when I'm at home. Man's best friend God is a God you can always feel their presence. He greets you at the door. The minute you sit down, he hops up on the couch with you. He's right across the room. He is always present. So man's best friend God is the idea that you will and should always feel God's presence. We sing about it. We read about it. And then you get older and you don't sense the presence of anything. And you say, God, I want to feel your presence. I want to feel you. And so you read your Bible and you listen to Christian music and, and suddenly you're just flat. Where are you? And then something is going on in your life and you're praying and you're trying to feel him, but instead you feel like he's left the room. He's not there when you walk in the door. And so if you can't feel him, he must not really be there. Who told you that? I want you to think about this. Did you know that you are the least aware of the things that are most constant? I even put it in your notes. The most constant thing in our lives are the least noticeable. I mean, when you're sitting in a room, how often do you go, wow, air. I feel it, I'm breathing. No, because it's a constant. If you stopped believing in God because you couldn't feel his presence at every moment, that's because he is a constant. And just because you can't feel him does not mean he doesn't exist. So if you stop believing in man's best friend, God, then good, he doesn't exist either. So this is a Sunday school God that this God is one of the trickiest. This is the God that chases us throughout our adulthood. This is a God we want to stop believing in. He haunts us. This is a God that makes you say, I don't believe in God, and that's a good thing, because this is the shame on you God. Shame on you God controls us through guilt and fear. If it's enjoyable, the answer is no. If it's sexual, it is no, no, no right? This is a God that loves you, but he doesn't like you. He is a God that we believe is sitting way up on a throne, way up in heaven, and he's waiting for us to mess up so he can squish us, right? As soon as we can get away from shame on you, God, we run. But for some reason, that guilt stays with us, and it follows us into adulthood. Who told you that was God? A pastor? A priest? Your parents? That's a somebody told me so God. And if you stop believing in him, great. He is not a real God. Get rid of the shame. Get rid of the guilt. And finally, the last Sunday school God is the Big Bang God. That's the anti-science God. Somebody forced you to decide between science and God. And you look at science, and there are things that you see that are just undeniable. And then you look at religion and across the world, and it is messy, and faith is hard to explain, and it's, it's unreliable. So if you look at religion and you look at science, you feel like you have to choose. And some of you grew up thinking, 
Quit thinking, start believing. Stop asking questions, just believe. If you were raised like that, I'm sorry, because that is absolutely not true. We become a Christian through faith, but we aren't a Christian just because we start believing things. So if you walked away because of this kind of thinking, I don't blame you. Richard Dawkins, he's the author of uh, The God Delusion, he said, one of the truly bad effects of a religion is that it teaches us that it is a virtue to be unsatisfied with not understanding. That it's a virtue to say, well, we don't know, we just believe. That's foolish. That's Sunday school God. Your Sunday school God could not compete with science. And if you decided to give up science for God, I don't think you really did. I want to give you an example. So this is just for Christian moms in the room. When your child gets really sick, do you take them to church? No, you take them to the doctor. And then the doctor examines them and says, you know what, we're going to do a blood draw, we're going to send it to the lab, so you go home and we'll call you tomorrow and tell you the results. So you go home and you call all your friends and you ask them to pray, but you're sitting by the phone and you're waiting for the lab results. And then your doctor calls and he says, okay, well, I've gotten all the lab results in and I think God's trying to teach you something. No, no. We are hypocrites if we believe in science when it comes to medical issues, but nothing else. So if you felt forced out of your faith because you had to choose between science and your faith because of something that you learned in a science class or in a math class or in physics, I'm sorry. Because Christians believe that God created the earth and science is the discovery of how he did it. So you don't have to choose between Christianity and science. You don't have to believe in a Big Bang God. Which one? Christians, because Christians believe that God created the earth and science is the discovery of how he did it. Isn't that good? I love that. So we looked at a list of Superman God and genie in a bottle God and shame on you God and Big Bang God. And you know what's wrong with these gods? These are the gods of unmet expectations. They stem from childhood explanations and some are blatant manipulation. So which one of these gods may have caused you or someone you know to walk away? Did your God ever grow up or did you outgrow your God? Because maybe today's nuns simply walked away from the wrong God. So now I want to look at if the Bible says it, that settles it. Many of us were brought up with Jesus loves me for the uh-huh, this is where all the trouble began. <laughs> the problem with this statement is that it says, it tells us that the reason we believe is because the Bible said so. It says, I can believe Jesus loves me because the Bible said so. And we grow up with this idea that if the Bible says it, that settles it. But it doesn't settle it, does it? 
And then we have this whole list of questions about the Bible, and we actually feel guilty. And they, no, 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 you can't ask questions. That's the Bible. The problem is, if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, then it is all or nothing. This means if we can't defend every single part of the Bible, then Christianity, Christianity goes away. That means if anything in the Bible has a discrepancy, then Christianity becomes a house of cards that comes crashing down. I messed some of you up just now, didn't I? I know, but stay with me, okay? Here's the good news. Christianity is far more endurable than the Bible. So if you walked away from Christianity because of something you read in the Bible or something you heard about in the Bible, I want you to know this. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. And the New Testament, I'm not talking about the Old Testament now, I'm talking about the New Testament documents something that happened. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. It is the other way around. I want to tell you why, but I have to do a little bit of a history lesson, and this is very much Heather E's, okay? So there was a man who walked on the earth, and he was doing miracles, and he was teaching, and he was making all kinds of friends. He had 12 very, very close friends, and he began to tell the Jews that, hey, hey, you know the scriptures that you've been reading about the Messiah? The Messiah is the one that, was, that, that God's going to send to save the Jews? Jesus says, that's me. That's me. Wait, what, 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 what? You're that Messiah? You're, you sure? You're that Messiah? And as he continued to teach and do miracles, they started to believe it. And, and the, the, the disciples that were closest to him, they saw so much that they knew now that he was the Messiah. And then in around 30 AD, Jesus was crucified. They killed him. He was dead. Suddenly they're like, oops, Okay, wrong guy. That, that couldn't be. There was no Christianity in those three days. They're like, oh, he's dead. We were wrong. Let's look again. Let's try again. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And a few months later, by this time, Peter has been hanging out with his resurrected friend. And he goes into Jerusalem and he starts saying, guys, I got to tell you something. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. You should say you're sorry. And he starts telling people, Jesus is alive. The one who said he was the Messiah, he's alive. I've seen him. And for 40 days, he walked around showing everybody he was alive. And Peter said, we believe it because we've seen it. Not because we read it, but we've seen it. And as a result, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people in Jerusalem embraced a risen Savior. So now the church is born. And the church is, is just a gathering of people that would all come together in small little groups. And they would just talk about 
Jesus. They would talk about the teachings that the apostles would give them because the apostles would teach them what Jesus said. And they would get together and they would pray and they would eat. And this was the church. The New Testament writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they started writing it down not to write a story, but they wrote it as if they were writing history. They were not doing it because they wanted to write a book that was going to be called the Bible someday. They were writing it down because it was something they had seen and experienced, and they wanted there to be a written documentation of what they saw. <clears throat> there are some that try to say that these documents, um, that, that they now call them the New Testament, but that they were written hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus' resurrection so that they can say that, you know, it's folklore or that it's, um, it's exaggerated and so on. But I want to give you a great example. Okay, so Luke is the one that wrote that he's, he's a doctor. This, Luke was very meticulous. His words were very specific. And I just love the fact that Luke went to great extent to pin down himself on a specific historical content because he knew he was writing history and he did not want them to call it folklore or something. So look at Luke 3.1. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, then when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod Terioch of Galilee, his brother Philip was Terioch of Ituria and Trambliblibla and Elizabeth Terioch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Sapphira. When did this happen? Luke is saying, go ahead, fact check me. He was making it so clear that this was not like long ago or back when the Romans ruled the earth. This was not once upon a time in a far, far galaxy. Luke is saying, this is his way of saying, this story is a narrative. It really happened, and I want to pin it down to a specific time in history because I saw it. If you're making something up, you don't do that. So the first century, there was this huge explosion of documents being written about the life of Jesus. And these, these documents, okay, so the, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So these documents are being written. And then we also have the epistles. Now the epistles were, were letters being written to these brand new churches, these brand new gatherings, because it was getting so big. So these are like Peter, Paul, and, and, and James. They were writing the epistles. So they started uh, gathering together the Gospels and the epistles, and Christians in the first century started copying them meticulously because they wanted to spread this as far as they possibly could. These documents started getting distributed to Rome and Jerusalem and Egypt and all around the Mediterranean Rim as far as they could possibly send it. But here's what I want you to see. They did not copy these because they believed they were inspired they made copies of the Bible because they believed they were true. So some time goes by and these documents are being circulated all over the world. So for 300 years, Christianity is exploding. It's growing exponentially. And what's amazing about this is that these were the persecution years. Being a believer in Jesus, uh, that he rose from the dead, 
got you dead, and not in the pretty way. So the fact that it grew so much in a time that you were being so persecuted for being a Christian, there's something amazing about this. And just for a little history lesson, in, in 312 AD, Constantine became the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he eventually lifted the restriction of Christian worship in Rome. Some of you guys know that because you're history buffs. And it wasn't because he wanted to be a believer. It was because he wanted to unify the empire. He needed to find something that the Roman Empire had in common, and it was no longer the Roman gods. Christianity took its greatest strides after he finally lifted this, and it grew for the next 282 years, and it did not grow because the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible teaches, it grew through word of mouth and these documents. And the Jewish scriptures, what we all call the Old Testament now, they were not even combined with the New Testament for like another 50 years so the first record that we have of the Old Testament Jewish documents being combined with the New Testament Greek documents is not for another 350 years after Jesus' birth. Before the Old Testament and the New Testament were combined and the title, the Bible, was given, Christianity had already replaced most of the gods of Rome, Egypt, and it was now the official religion of the Roman Empire before anyone ever had a Bible in their hand. So for the first time, the word Bible was put on this collection of documents. It was 388 years after Jesus' resurrection. So for nearly 400 years, the Christians believed, Jesus loves me, this I know before the Bible told them so. Peter, James, John, Luke, Paul, all of these first century writers, they did not believe in Jesus because any Bible or document told them so. I want you to imagine that someone goes back into, goes, goes, someone from the future goes back into the past and they run into Peter and they sit down with Peter, and they go, Peter, Peter, okay, before you Jesus freak on me, I want you to understand, did, do you know that there is no archaeological evidence that the world was flooded? And did you know that, that scientifically we can't prove that the world, you know, it's got to be more than 6,000 years old? And I bet Peter's like, whoa, 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 wait. This guy from the future says, hey, Peter, before you tell people about Jesus... You need to get your facts straight. And Peter's like, wait, I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't know what all this is. But all I know was that I watched my friend die. And then a few days later, all these, all these women who went to go to the tomb, they come running back and they said, he's gone, he's gone. And, and I, went, I went and I looked in the tomb. And really, I thought somebody had just like stolen the body. And then a few days later, I'm in a boat and standing on the beach is my friend. He's alive. We had breakfast together. He is no longer dead. So I don't know all that stuff that you're talking about, but all I know is my faith doesn't hang on the thread of verifying everything in the Old Testament. Peter would say, I'm a Jewish man, and I know the Jewish scriptures 
but I'm not a follower of Jesus because of the scriptures. I'm a follower of Jesus because he rose from the dead. For the first 300 years, the debate was not based on a book. It was based on an event. So the question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are going to say, oh yes, yes, he did. And this, this violent Pharisee named Paul had this huge transformation and he dedicated the rest of his life to saying, yes, Jesus died and he loves you. So if you walked away from your faith because you could no longer defend the Bible, I want to tell you, your faith doesn't hang on a book. Jesus loves you. This you know because Luke went to great lengths to write it, all the details down so you would know. So if you walked away from your faith because God did not live up to the expectations you had as a child, because someone told you that bad things would never happen to good people, and you realize as an adult that's not true, or that God would be your genie in a bottle and he would grant you any reasonable wish that you asked, or that God was an angry God and he was going to fill you with guilt and fear and wait for you to mess up so he could squish you like a bug, I'm sorry, that's not Christianity. Or if you walked away because you can't defend everything that is written in the Bible, I want to leave you with this. The reason you should reconsider Christianity is because of a person named Jesus who loved you so much that he went to extraordinary lengths to die for you. And then he rose from the dead. Anyone who would go to such great lengths for you is worth checking out, don't you think? So it starts as easy as a conversation. And it might sound something like this. Hello, God. It's me, your daughter. And today I think I'm realizing that you might love me. Can we talk? Let's pray. Dear Father, there are so many people that have walked away from the most incredible thing that you, that you did because you love us. And it's because we've messed it up and we've manipulated it and we've given it different titles and names and gods. And I pray right now, Lord, that, that with the women in this room, we will start a new revolution where we are telling people that you're believing and walking away from the wrong God. Thank you so much, God, for loving us so much that your son came and he died. And thank you for showing us that you're God because you brought him back to life. Lord, I pray that the women in this room that hear this, that they can rekindle their new faith. Or, or they can help someone who's walked away and bring them back. Lord, we've complicated it. But it's not that complicated. It's simple. So Father, I just pray 
that your Holy Spirit will just move in this room and we will, we will want to go out and tell our friends who have walked away or tell our friends that are right on the verge and they just are, they're just scared that there is so nothing to be scared of. Jesus is such a beautiful gift. You just got to receive it. I thank you, God, for who you are. I thank you for your son. And I thank you for these women. In Jesus' name, amen. Their discussion <laughs> There's discussion questions on the back of your documents. Thank you for letting me share today.